unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode number 10, Literary Hell. I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an assist, assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, where knowledge inspired is our slogan and our way of life. Uh, I'm joined from Athens, Georgia, uh, by a man who occasionally slips up and lists his home address as the Shire, Mr. David Grubbs. How are you doing, David? <laughs> I'm doing really well, sir. And from Tallahassee, Florida, he's bringing Exy back, or existentialism at any rate. Michael Farmer, how are you doing? I'm glad you explained that, Nathan, because I had no <laughs> idea what you were talking about. Sometimes I have no idea what I'm talking about, Michael. <laughs> at any rate, uh, we had some feedback from last episode. It was some good stuff. Uh, first of all, from Phil Rutledge, an old friend of mine. I was actually his resident assistant back in college. Uh, he sent us a very. Time. Say again? It's payback time. Yeah. <laughs> he sent us a very thoughtful email. I am in the process of drafting a response to it, and it will appear on my blog, Hardly the Last Word, at NathanGilmore.com slash Hardly. Look for that in the next couple days, Phil. And if you could, if you're listening to this, shoot me an email. Let me know if I have permission to reproduce the email in the blog post, because it would make more sense if I could. And other feedback, uh, we got... A gift this week, uh, our first CWC podcast of the year. If you have subscribed to that, uh, you'll need to resubscribe because it's on iTunes U, and each new season has its own feed. Uh, if you've not subscribed to it, go into your iTunes store, uh, search, search for CWC Radio. It's a really great podcast out of Bethel, which is in Minnesota, which is, of course, the home of the Vikings, who probably should be playing in the Super Bowl two weeks from now. My heart goes out to you guys. And actually, it would have been a lot more fun if I had the next two weeks to talk smack and issue formal boasts to the CWC crew. As it stands, I've got a root against the great Hurricane Katrina comeback story. So where does that I'm, lead I'm going me? for the Saints, Nathan. I'm letting you know now. I mean, even though they're in uh, the Falcons division and I should hate them, the Saints have never won a Super Bowl, and I think they should win. Well, what you must do, do quickly, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just did it. Don't worry. I, uh, I don't I don't know enough sports to be able to actually talk smack. <laughs> well, at any rate, getting into today's material, um, we're talking about hell as it appears in literature. And this is one of those places where literature and theology almost by necessity intersect with each other. Uh, one of the things about Sheol and Hades and Gehenna, which are some of the Hebrew and Greek words that pop up in the Christian Bible for some form of the afterlife, often some form of afterlife punishment, is that they appear in the threats of prophets, they appear in the laments of psalmists, they even appear occasionally in the sermons of Jesus and the letters of Paul, but there's not really very much narrative that goes along with them. The best that we get really is the, the I don't even know whether to call it a story or a parable of the poor man uh, and the wealthy man who end up in the afterlife and the wealthy man ends up, you know, wanting a, dr a drink of water in hell. Uh, that's about all we get in the text of the Bible itself. But Christians, and especially Christian poets, have often turned to classical poetry, uh, such as Homer, such as Virgil, uh, who have their, who have in fact written long scenes about the underworld. And Christian poets have pretty unabashedly borrowed that imagery. So, just to get a little bit of background down, Michael, I'm going to ask you for a minute. Uh, could you talk a little bit about why Odysseus goes to Hades, why Aeneas goes to the underworld? I mean, what's going on in those classical poems? I think mostly that's a plot device, but we'll give Homer and Virgil a little more credit than that. Um, Odysseus goes to the Greek underworld in Book 11 of the Odyssey, and he goes there because the sorceress Circe has instructed him to go there. Um, and the Greek underworld, as Homer presents it, is this place of, uh, I think the exact quote is, uh, gloom and darkness. And Odysseus has to listen to all these different ghosts tell him all their sob stories. 
Um, there's not really a punishment the way we would think of a punishment. Um, mostly people sit around being sad and regretting the way they live their lives. And so they can't even talk down there until they've received the blood of sacrificial animals, which I guess means that when people like Odysseus aren't there to give them that blood, all these ghosts do is sit around in silence and gloom and darkness. And it's, it's really a vision of total alienation in a crowd, really an enhanced version of what we in the 21st century would probably call depression. Um, I'm not sure if the Greeks had any idea of that as a psychological condition. Uh, the saddest part of that story, by the way, is the part where Odysseus talks to his mother, and his mother tells him that uh, Penelope's about to remarry because Odysseus has been gone forever. Um, but afterwards, he tries to embrace his mother, and his hands go right through her. Um, and here's, here's what he says. I think this is very telling. He says, um, Mother, why do you not stay still when I would embrace you? If we could throw our arms around one another, we might find sad comfort in the sharing of our sorrows, even in the house of Hades. So that's, I think, the essence of the Greek Hades. It's, it's comfortless because no human connection is really possible. And uh, as for Aeneas, he goes to the underworld in book six of the Aeneid, which I haven't read um, since high school, I think. So I may be getting some of this wrong. Um, but the uh, the Roman underworld is very clearly based on the Greek underworld, and Aeneas is going there not to find out how to get home, but he wants to pay tribute to his dead father. Um, but we've pretty much got the same situation. The underworld is this place of vague mourning, but not much um, actual active pain. Although Aeneas, unlike Odysseus, actually has to confront the woman that he betrayed and drove to suicide, which you know, starts to get a little bit closer to something we'd call a guilt experience in the underworld. It's also pretty awkward. <laughs> yes, indeed. No doubt. <laughs> and, you know, again, just to keep working on this background type of stuff, you know, David, I know that you've done, you know, more work than either of us with medieval literature in general, Anglo-Saxon literature in particular. And I know that, uh, for instance, when Beowulf descends into the mirror, uh, to do battle with the mother of Grendel. I mean, we're talking about all sorts of traditional hell imagery. Do you want to talk about that for a few minutes for me? Yeah, I mean, at first I think, though, it, it needs to be you know, made clear that a lot, a lot has been done with Beowulf uh, over, you know, over the decades to turn it into uh, a theological allegory of sorts. I don't think that's necessary, because the poet actually embeds it within the reality of the primary story. Uh, Grindel is himself a demon. He's called a spirit for, uh, a spirit from hell. He's called a demon from hell. Um, and the, where he lives looks like hell. And I don't think that's any, any kind of uh, contradiction of, uh, of the way they, they thought about things. Um, when you... Uh, look at the description of where uh, where Grindel lives, Grindel's mirror. Um, uh, it, des it describes thing, uh, a, a steep cliff, um, this uh, a, a grove that's uh, covered with frost, monsters that live in this uh, big uh, body of water that's underneath it. That doesn't sound a lot you know, to to us when we think of hell, we think of flames. But there is actually a homily, an old English sermon, from uh, the Blickling manuscript, one of the famous Blickling homilies, in which there is a description of hell as uh, a as basically this big lake at the bottom of a cliff. Um, the description is uh, it's it's a vision that's attributed to Paul to Saint Paul. And it says, uh, St. Paul, he saw above the water a hoary stone, and north of the stone had grown woods very very rimy or all covered with frost. There were dark mists. Under the stone was the dwelling place of monsters, and he saw hanging on the cliff on the icy wood black souls with their hands bound, and devils in the likeness of monsters were seizing them like greedy wolves, and the water under the cliff beneath was black. Um, and this description of hell in the Blickling homily is uh, very often uh, stuck in the back of of Beowulf editions as a as a parallel text. I mean, it's it seems that Grindel 
almost very literally lives in an Anglo-Saxon version of hell. Right, and in fact, the word hell is uh, which North European language is it derived from, David? I can't remember if it's Old English or Norse. Uh, the word shows up in both. The okay, word the word shows, shows up in both. both. All right. So, in, yeah. in in Old Norse mythology, hell is not a place; it's a person. Um, it's a daughter of Loki. She has a a body that's half alive and half dead, and she rules a particular realm of the dead. There are many different places where dead people can go in Norse uh, the Norse uh, you know mythological scheme. And uh, the bad dead go to hell, H-E-L with one L. Um, and her, her, uh, her dwelling is imagined as a, as a cold, dark place, which uh, if you can imagine, you know, if you lived in, you know, if you came from the land of the ice and snow, um, that. Yeah, Farmer and I both have Led Zeppelin in our head now. Excellent. That's that was my point. Um, if that's where you come from, what the the scary thing that you know is the dark and the cold, and what you look forward to with joy is the warmth of fire, the warmth of summer. So, uh, you know, the this this older version of hell, this uh, that's associated more with with peoples in northern Europe, uh, that seems to be showing up in Beowulf. Hell is still a village in Norway, isn't it, David? Isn't there a village called Hell? Probably, um, because it can also mean uh, just kind of a. I believe I believe the word the word can also mean a low place, like a hollow. Oh, okay. So, it's also a city in Michigan, and uh, really? people drive from miles around to mail uh, stuff for uh, Halloween from Hell, Michigan, I believe. I saw it on the Travel <laughs> Channel. Yeah, so nobody goes to Purgatory. I don't know why. Because apparently there's a string of three cities, Hell, Purgatory, and Heaven in Michigan. Oh, I didn't know it was a Heaven. I believe so, yeah. At least someone's told me that. I haven't verified this. Listeners, if you can verify or falsify this, please email us. I believe do- Hell being in Michigan, but I'm not sure I believe Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> you could do a whole Dante road trip. Yeah, I think that's the idea of the three cities. You got to kick so your it, uh, you got to kick your friend out of the car after the second one, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So if you're keeping score at home, Sheol is Hebrew, Gehenna and Hades are Greek, Inferno is Italian, Hell is Norse and English. Uh, we've got all kinds of these words, and I want to break off for a second before we go to any more literary text, guys. I mean, one of the things that is definitely notable about these early visions of hell, let's call them that, is that they are very tactile. You know, in the Anglo-Saxon traditions, they're definitely linked to a place. In the Aeneid, there's certainly a place where Aeneas goes to enter into the underworld. Uh, you know, this is very alien, I think, to a lot of modern minds. You know, I think Michael of uh, Karl Barth's Dogmatics and Outline, where one of the first things he says is, you know, the spiritual realm is not a place that you can locate you can't point to it uh but it exists somehow simultaneously with three-dimensional reality as we know it uh i mean what i i don't have any any real agenda for you know that observation i mean do you guys make anything of that i mean is that just sort of a a modern anxiety that we don't want to locate things for fear that they might be falsified what's going on there do you think I think that's probably accurate. Um, I, I think that's one reason we, we tend toward abstraction more. And, and the other reason is, where would we locate it? We we know, we, we don't have to worry about it being falsified. We know hell's not at the center of the earth, because, uh, you know, we've we've gotten close enough to know that. And we know heaven's not up, because there's no up to go to. So, uh I, I think some of it, some of it is is anxiety about falsification, and some of it is just pre-falsification. If I may, uh, I rem- one of my most vivid memories uh, as a child at my grandparents' house is that they always watched TBN, Trinity and, Broadcast Network, for listeners at home. Yes, and one episode that I remember because I had no idea what to make of it as a child. Um, Paul and Jan Crouch are enthusing about something, 
And what it is, is a news story that Jan has read, which said that some group of scientists with a with a really big oil drill had just drilled deep, 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 deep within the crust of the earth and had dropped in a microphone and they heard screams. Do you know where they got that story, David? It's a I famous d- story from the Weekly World News. Is it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but it was it showed up on TBN with very excited, you know, gray bouffanted Jan Crouch, <laughs> um, just so thrilled that Christianity had been confirmed because there are people screaming in the core of the earth. And what are you going to say about that, unbelievers? You know, and my first reaction to that was, in the core of the earth? What? <laughs> It is hot there. Well, I know it's hot there, but even, you know, even I, I was probably like maybe 10. I, I, don't, I don't remember how old I was. But even then I was like, that doesn't make sense because people's bodies don't go there, right? The bodies stay in the coffin. How does a soul go in it? What does that even mean? <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, apparently not all of us are content to say that hell is a spiritual place that cannot be located. Fair enough, fair enough. Now, as people who know me at all, who have read any of Hardly the Last Word at all, you know that I read through Dante's comedy in its entirety every summer. Uh, I've been doing so since 2002, and it gets better every year. But before we get to the master of the afterlife, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, David, I know that, you know, Beowulf is not the only medieval Christian vision of hell that we've got. I know that we've got other sources from Anglo-Saxon texts that tell us uh, something more about how they imagined hell. Do you want to talk about those for a minute or two? Well, I mean, just really briefly, and I think it's a good introduction to to Dante um, in Bede's uh, History of the Church in England. Um, he records in, uh, I believe it's, uh, I believe it's Book Five, um, three different uh, what we would call today near death experiences, in which, uh, you know. The, uh, in one case, in a couple of cases, it's monastic brothers. One, I think, is a, a, a fellow who's a commoner who they become very sick. Everyone thinks they've passed away, but they recover. And then they provide this account of uh, of hell. Um, they, they, they see spirits that have, you know, that have been punished. And they're much closer to to what we would see in Inferno with descriptions of flames descriptions of devils tormenting people um you know you know evil spirits dragging people into burning pits and throwing them in and you know the the notion of a sulfurous stench and things like that um you know and also just the the literary notion of hell being a place that you visit in a vision and then come back and tell um there's also uh some some descriptions of hell in the poems Christ and Satan, and in uh, the Old English Genesis, uh, where you have Satan in hell, uh, fettered, bound in hell, and then the Old English uh, Saint's Life uh, poem Guthlock. There's uh, there's a, a, an episode in which demons snatch up Guthlock the saint and carry him to the mouth of hell and hold him over it and taunt him with his sins. At which point he says, you know, something to the effect of, hey, go ahead and throw me in because it's not really up to you. (laughs) And then St. Bartholomew shows up and saves the day. Not really sure why St. Bartholomew, but that's who it is. Why not? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, why not? At that point, I (laughs) – Maybe he had a fan base in the old English church that, you know, that hasn't really survived to the present day. That could be. That could be. All right, well, you know, like I said, we're obviously building up to Dante because I'm moderating this week and I'm <laughs> just a, a great lover of Dante's poem. Uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that you guys have read at least some of the comedy. I just want to go around the horn. I mean, what are your favorite translations? What translations have you read? How, how do you get to Dante, David? Um, I've got to say that I've, I've, I've read The Inferno. Um, I've read at Purgatorio, 
I don't think I've ever touched Paradise. You're um, not missing much, David. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> I feel like I should feel bad about that. Um, but, you know, I haven't felt bad enough to actually change it. I don't recall which translation that I was looking at. I think I may have gotten, uh, try, tried to find the, the one that Dorothy Sayers was working on. Um, I think she left it unfinished when she died. No, she finished it. Or it's, she finished it's been, it? It's been finished. Uh, it's the okay. Penguin edition. It's the edition okay. I'm familiar with. Okay, I think that was. I think that might have been the one that I was looking at because, well, I, I actually came at it. I, I'd read, I'd read uh, Inferno and some other tradition that I or some other translation that I don't even recall. And then when I discovered Dorothy Sayers, I was like, she translated Dante. Awesome. So I try. I tracked that down. So I was half geeking about about Dante, half geeking out about Dorothy Sayers. <laughs> the Sayers translation is nice because she keeps the rhythm and the rhyme. So it's 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 in English, obviously, but it's still in Terza Rima. All right, and see, I'm not I've actually not read Sayers translation. I'll have to pick that up sometime and read it. I, for several years, I read Michael Musa's translation, and then these last two summers, I've read from John Ciardi's translation. I mean, both are both of which are excellent. Um, before we go on, bit. Nathan, I uh, I have to tell a story about Alan Mandelbaum. Hit it. Mandelbaum did translations of Dante and Virgil and Homer and Ovid and probably everybody else. Um, and he speaks like 45 languages, and he's very, very old. He's, he's very, very old. Well, my high school teacher, uh, Stuart Egan, and Stu, if you're listening, and I have no idea if you are, hello. Uh, anyway, he took a class with Mandelbaum at Wake Forest. He took a class, I think, on Dante. Well, apparently Mandelbaum sat down at the front of the class smoking cigarettes from one of those long cigarette holders, and he'd be lecturing the class, and all of a sudden he'd start speaking Italian or Latin or something else, and a student would raise his hand and say, Dr. Mandelbaum, you're not speaking English. And Dr. Mandelbaum would take a long drag on a cigarette and say, No, my dear, I'm not. And that's when I realized <laughs> that I wanted to be a college professor. <laughs> Have you have you read the Mandelbaum translation, Nathan? Is it any good? No, I haven't. I actually have Mandelbaum's translations of uh, Virgil and Ovid, but I've not looked at his Dante translation. And I've I've thoroughly enjoyed his you know translation of the Romans. So I can imagine his Dante would also be a good read. Well, at any rate, uh, you know, let's start talking a little bit about Dante's organization of hell. I mean, one of the things that people notice immediately about Dante's vision of hell is that it's very systematically divided up into certain vices. And if you take a step beyond that, you'll notice that it's divided up not as you might expect by the Ten Commandments, one circle for each commandment, or even one circle for each paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, or even one paragraph for each vice in one of Paul's lists of vices in Galatians or Colossians. Uh, but instead, it's divided up in very classical terms. Uh, after the circle of limbo where the virtuous pagans spend their eternity not screaming but sighing uh, because they are eternally longing for something that they'll never have. Uh, once you get into the circles of punishment, you get people punished for their vices of appetite, lust, gluttony, those sorts of things in the highest and least severe circles. Then you get the sins of the spirit, violence, things like that in the middle circles. And then the lowest parts, which of course culminates in an icy hell, so, you know, whether Dante had contact with northern versions of hell, I don't know. Uh, but once you get into those lowest areas, you get things like fraud and betrayal, which are sins against reason, uh, sins against the Aristotelian vision of human beings in a trusting community. Um, you know, I'll, I'll shoot this to David, and I mean... You can go any direction you want, but I mean, what do you think that does for the poem? Uh, I mean, would it have made sense to divide hell differently, or does Dante's division of things make sense to you? Well, I think it certainly would have made sense to his audience. Um, the, this is, yeah, I, I thought this was a really interesting question when you presented it to me. And I, I don't, I had a few answers came to mind. Um, the first is that Dante, Dante's schema 
Dante's sort of sorting of sin into different categories and so forth seems seems to fit the way they were the the way theology was being done um, of of parsing uh, parsing sins according to uh, according to their sources according to their effects um, uh, you know I I haven't read the whole thing but uh, in uh, Thomas's Summa he you know he makes a distinction between spiritual and carnal sins and you know I I don't know he may he may go on and 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 give some some distinctions that are similar to what Dante does. I'm also reminded of the Confessio Amantis, uh, which uh, which I've 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 uh, you know I've read in in the Middle English, and it actually sorts out into uh, this this big scheme all the different kinds of sins that can be committed uh, in in loving relationships. And it'll it'll you know what is it what is the sin of pride and love and then what are the sub sins that follow under the, fall under the category of pride and how do they work out, um, you know I I think there's something very satisfying, at least to to that medieval medieval desire to to organize things, um, I think there's something very satisfying in Dante's Hell because it makes it makes justice seem very organized as well. <laughs> um, what do you think, Nathan? I mean, uh, that that's that's just when when I saw it. What I saw was the, the the medieval desire to to get things sorted out in a nice, orderly, logical manner. Yeah, that makes some sense. And I mean, especially since in the early 14th century, when Dante's doing this, Aristotle is decidedly ascendant in the academy. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in Dante's own education, you know, Latin translations of Aristotle, probably from Arabic texts, uh, would have been the core of the curriculum. So, you know, since that is the body of philosophy available to them, good texts of Plato aren't yet available, uh, you know, there's a reason that Aquinas refers to Aristotle as the philosopher. It's not that he's trying to insult Plato by any means, it's just that that is the Greek philosophy that that Thomas Aquinas has at his fingertips at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, I think that, you know, because knowledge at that moment is so unified, as opposed to being very, very specialized in our time, uh, it does make sense to imagine creation extending beyond uh, the things that happen between the moon and the surface of the earth, you know, the things in the underworld and the things in heaven as being ordered according to Aristotle's vision of things. Michael, I, you know, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, is it the organization of the Inferno based on the seven deadly sins in increasing uh, order of badness? That's I what, that's what I was it, told when I took a class on Dante in undergrad. Well, I'm trying to think. I mean, the, the seven deadly sins, you know, lust, avarice, gluttony. Pure saggle. That's that's the order backwards: pride, envy, wrath, uh, sloth, avarice, greed, lust. All right, now here, here's lust. the question I would have. I mean, the lowest circles don't seem to be easily identifiable as those. You know, it's the fraudulent and it is the that's betrayers. True. That's yeah. true. Hmm. They're kind of, they're kind of a mixture if they're anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they have to be because they are very complex sins. I mean, I guess you know that that's one way you could think about it is that the sins become more complex as you get deeper into the inferno more complex and more more abstract and more and more um isolated you get you get lust and it's two people in in community of some sort even if it's even if it's sinful community uh by the time you get down to the very bottom you've got people who have completely turned their back on human society right although they're also stuck together because they're gnawing on each other <laughs> wow Poetic justice. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, that that's one of the poetic devices that Dante uses all the way through uh, is this idea. And now the words escaped me, David. Um, the contrapasso, that's the word. Uh, <laughs> the idea that, you know, in Dante's schema of eternal punishment, uh, one's punishment is a counterpunch to the sin itself. Uh Michael, do you, I mean, 
you haven't read it for a little while, but you know, do you have a, a favorite Contrapasso that you want to talk about? Um, no, I really don't remember that much about the Inferno. I read it in I think 2002. It was the last time I read it. All right, David, you, because I know I've got a couple, but I'm, I'm sure you do. You, <laughs> you sadistic. Uh, I can't finish that sentence, can I? <laughs> uh, Schismatics—they get ripped in half. That, yeah, that that one springs immediately to mind. Right. I mean, of course, you know, famously, uh, Dante regarded Islam not as a separate religion because that category wouldn't have made sense to him, but as a a schism within the church. It it, it was a Christian heresy uh, exactly. to hold Muhammad as a prophet. So uh, Muhammad himself is one of the people split in half in that circle. Yeah, I mean, I uh, call me sadistic, if you will, Michael. Uh, hmm. But you're you know, sadistic. I think. I th- <laughs> I'll ask I, your I th- students. I, th- I think that it's telling, first of all, that in the circle of thieves, uh, those who are, you know, being punished for usually robbing churches, uh, the state of existence there is that your very body can be stolen from you. And in fact, these thieves run around and, you know, they are composed of snakes in their body. And when a snake is sliding along the ground, you never know if it is just a snake or if it is the soul of one of your fellow thieves who's about to steal your body and chase you out of it. And I mean, it's a terrifying vision. I mean, you know, I'd, because our identities are so closely bound up with our bodies, the fact that your body could be snatched is, you know, something that obviously is translated into modern horror movies. Um, but the other one that always comes to mind is the people who purported to see the future. Uh, their contrapasso, their counterpunch is that they march around eternally with their heads turned around backwards. <laughs> and Dante being a, a vulgar poet, which is part of what makes him so fun, uh, actually talks about one of them weeping and the tears cascading down and running into his butt crack. <laughs> so... You know, I again, you know, the the medieval sensibility and the modern sensibility are very different. I, <laughs> you know, I do have a favorite, Nathan. I forgot about this. Who, who right. is it? Who has to just run around in a circle forever? Is that Limbo? No, that is actually the lustful and the sodomites, I believe. Yeah, that's my favorite, and I'll tell you why it's my favorite. Um, I uh, I once went to this dance club to see a friend of mine, just a regular dance club, mind you, not any kind of special dance club just a regular (laughs) dance club and all i could think about were the souls and continuous motion leading nowhere uh at this gotcha yeah i had not realized death had undone so many (laughs) well at any rate i i could talk about dante for two or three episodes the way robert harrison did last year on entitled opinion you don't say it like he does though do you no i don't i I don't say dante and you don't say (laughs) instead of sartre Right, right. right. <laughs> he but really does. Rate. I don't. I don't know if any of our audience uh, listens to Entitled Opinions, which is a great podcast. Oh, it's a he fine seriously podcast. pronounces Sartre as a uh, as a throat clearing. <laughs> well, at any rate, let's let us let us depart from Robert Harrison. Let us depart from Dante. Let us talk about Milton. Yeah, uh, I, of course, am writing part of my dissertation on Milton, so I have a few thoughts of my own but michael i want to kick it to you first i mean probably the biggest innovation about milton's hell and uh david you might want to chime in after michael talks about you know possible sources for this in the anglo-saxon tradition but one of the big innovations is that hell is not only a place of punishment for milton but it's also a staging ground for a would-be revenge plot against heaven uh, do you want to talk about that for a minute, and then David, you can talk about some Anglo-Saxony, and then I'll kick in after that. Sure, I think Milton makes hell more pathetic in his way. He adds this element of self-deception to the mix. The demons don't even really seem to realize that they're in hell, but it also th- makes things um, more serious. It makes them makes it scarier somehow. The specters in hell and Homer and Virgil, and certainly in Dante, they're not much danger to anybody on Earth. But the demons in Paradise Lost actually managed to, uh, you know, cause serious harm to Adam and Eve. So their counteroffensive actually kind of works. Um, and I got to say that I like that vision of hell better because of its implications. 
the, the, this this notion of self-deception what if you're in hell and don't even realize it and i know that's the kind of question people get high and talk about on freshman and freshman dorms all over the country but uh, i still think it's an interesting question <laughs> <laughs> and david I, we, we can't talk about milton without at least mentioning genesis b yeah. hit it my man um mentioned it earlier but uh there's an old english genesis poem and there's argument uh, there are two different fragments that that include a poetic account of genesis um it's generally thought that they're from that they're two separate works that 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 uh have been kind of pieced together you know, very often in anthologies you'll find genesis b inserted into the appropriate places of the plot uh in genesis a um genesis b is much more interesting i think uh, because it begins with the uh, the angel, uh, the fallen angels in hell, as as does Paradise Lost, and includes this this Satan talking smack back at God about you know how he's not appreciated and uh, about uh, basically de- de- depicting. Uh, you know Satan's fall as this this uh, failed attempt at a coup, but then attempting to uh, encourage his his comrades to to take heart and and uh, think about what they can do to you know, to undercut God's plan further, even though they were even though they're in hell. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's it's remarkably like uh, the beginning of Paradise Lost. Um, in in its in its conception of Satan as this kind of heroic or mock heroic figure, um, in uh, even even to the point of of his vaunt uh, against heaven, even though he's in hell, he still hasn't quite gotten the fact that he's completely outmatched. Um, he thinks he's just going to have to take this war, you know, underground. Um, whether or not Milton knew about Genesis B. Is, uh, is is arguable. Um, Milton uh, at least was in the same circles as Franciscus Junius, the scholar who discovered uh, the Junius manuscript in which Genesis B is. Which was um, handy because it was had the same name as him. Well, because <laughs> it because it was yeah because it was <laughs> sorry yeah anyway um. Junius, uh, Junius discovered this manuscript uh, in a library. Uh, Milton was it, it was floating in at, le- in at least the same kind of literary circles, and it was about the same time in uh, Milton's life when he was working on his uh, his history of England, and was very interested in uh, in the Anglo-Saxons and their values, and uh, by the account of Cadman that he has in uh, his history of England, he he was he was interested by the notion of of, of these poets in days of yore. Um, he was still at that time turning around in his mind, you know, what topic, what subject he wanted to use for his huge English epic, which he wanted to write, and was considering one thing and then objecting it, uh, and he settles. Um, you know, interestingly enough, on on what he wrote Paradise Lost about, um, I could you know I can't prove it because I can't you know you you won't find a historical smoking gun, but I like to think that Milton you know at, was at a tea party and rubbed shoulders with Franciscus Junius and they happened to get told talking about something they were both enthused about Old English and. Uh, John Milton says, I think Cadman's interesting. And Junius says, hey, I found this manuscript that I think was written by Cadman, which he did. He thought Genesis B was, uh, was, was by Cadman. Um, and, then, and then from that, I, I love to think that, that Paradise Lost could, be, could have grown out of a conversation about an old English text. But that's just because I want to make everything, everything about Anglo-Saxon studies. <laughs> but hey. I wrote a paper about it once. You know, got an A. Very good, very good. good well, one, one thing I want to pick up that Michael talked about is that, you know, Milton's Hell is one long string of self-deceptions, and I think that that's an important side of things. You know, I, Dante picks up on this, you know, 
every speech that a denizen of hell delivers has some sort of falsehood cooked into it. Uh, Milton takes that the next step and just makes every speech in hell just utterly absurd and every action in hell utterly absurd. You know, they build this fortress out of the rock of hell. Uh, they sit around in hell composing epics about how great they are after they've just get, gotten whooped. Uh, they sit around in hell doing philosophy, speculating about the nature of reality when they've just been thrown down by reality. Uh, you know, it's it's a place of irrationality. It's a place where right reason has entirely departed them. And, and I, I think, again, it's an interesting connection to Dante because, of course, the after the pilgrim in Inferno reads the famous sign, you know, abandon all ab- abandon hope all ye who enter here uh dante refers to the souls in hell as those who have lost the goods of intellect and that is you know exactly what milton runs with uh one of the things that i wanted to mention is that you know people have made much of milton's own political career and, and a possible co- connection to the demons in hell and you know whatever you want to make of that in a historical cause and effect relationship and in my case i don't try to make much of it uh, it is interesting that Satan, in one quick sweep, and it's hard to tell how much he's deceiving himself as well as the other demons, but he rails against the Father of Heaven, the Creator of Heavens and Earth, as a celestial tyrant, and within a couple hundred lines, he has set himself up as dictator of the demons. So again, I mean, you know, for Milton, you know, even more so than than Dante, I think Dante plants the idea and then Milton just runs with it and makes it, you know, wonderfully apparent. Uh, hell is a place of a place where truth doesn't live. And I think that's, you know, really Milton's grand contribution to it. Michael, I think you're right also that he makes it a more dangerous place because critters get out of it. (laughs) And, you know, there's something to say, to say about that. Um, I don't want to cut this too short, but I do want to get to, some interesting 20th century visions of hell because, you know, this is uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm fascinated with about 20th century literature is that in certain circles, visions of hell become the subject of really fascinating uh, plays, poems, novels. Uh, you know, the, one of them that we're not going to talk about a whole lot is George Bernard Shaw's uh, Don Juan in Hell from his play Man and Superman, which I think actually might be an influence upon C.S. Lewis's vision of hell in The Great Divorce. Uh, David, I mean, this is a very different vision from, certainly from Dante, but even from Milton. I mean, what's going on in C.S. Lewis's shadow world? Well, uh, the first uh, the first thing that I think we need to do is explain the title. Um, I remember as a child... Uh, I, I love the Narnia books, and then I found a list of other things he wrote, and I saw the great divorce. What's great about divorce? Um, yeah, not knowing, not knowing that that Lewis is riffing off of uh, Blake's *The Marriage of Heaven and Hell*, which is a work that that I do not know well at all. Um, all about all all I know is what Lewis says in the introduction of *The Great Divorce*. Um, yeah, all I know is the quote from Bull Durham, so you're doing I better than it. I am. I read it and couldn't tell you one thing about it. it, it it's it's among Blake's uh, weird poetry, like uh, Jerusalem and the one about America. It, it is, uh, it's very strange, it's very visionary, and I assume it's very Swedenborgian. <laughs> yes, and to say something of William Blake's is among his weirder stuff is saying something. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I, um, what Lewis says... Uh, the great divorce is, is meant to do is apparently and again I can't I can't confirm this never having read it but apparently in the marriage of heaven and hell uh, what Blake is attempting to do is is find some way in which uh, good and evil can can be resolved and 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 be together and seen as maybe two sides of the same coin or or whatever uh, that there's that there's some way in which heaven and hell are not opposites. Right, but, it is a very monist vision that Blake okay. does set out. I do remember that much. Okay. The Great Divorce uh, is Lewis's counter to that. 
in which he argues that no, there is an ultimate separation between good and evil. There is a not a marriage, but a divorce, an utter separation. And uh, you see that in uh, in in the great divorce played out in the lives of uh, the ghosts from the gray town. Um, the the narrator becomes aware of himself in this. It, from from the way it's described, it sounds it sounds like a, a a decayed urban environment that's completely empty and utterly dull. Um, which you know the the inhabitants just just call the gray town. Um, he he finds himself at at this uh, a line at a bus stop, and, uh, and everyone's quarreling trying to get on the bus. Um, and then they get in the bus, and the bus drives down the street and then takes off into the air and comes to this wonderful, bright, beautiful place. And it's that point, it's at that point that you realize that, um, gosh, the gray town is hell. <laughs> um, that the gray town is not, uh, you know, it's not our world per se, but it's, you know, this, this is the place of punishment. Um, however, the punishment is not, it's not, Dante's, you know, there are no people who are being split in half or, you know, turned into snakes or whatever. Although it's similar to Dante's Limbo in some ways. Okay. Which, I don't remember Limbo very much, because it, I, probably because it wasn't as Well, everyone good. spends eternity trying to get under a stick that gradually gets lower and lower to the ground. <laughs> no, they don't really. Sorry, go ahead, David. I was going to say, ah, that hurt. <laughs> um... So in the in in the gray town, uh, it is it is utterly dull, and the hell that people the people have in the gray town is the hell that they bring with themselves. Um, everyone that is there is completely selfish, completely quarrelsome, and they ultimately manifest their their sin and this this nature of sin that they're kind of eternally stuck in by getting farther and farther away from each other. They quarrel and they move to the next street and then they move further out and further out and further out. And, uh, you know, Lewis describes that, you know, if you wanted to go see Napoleon, you would have to travel like millions of miles off in that direction. Cause you got to get the French joke in. Uh, yeah. In which you find this, this, you know, huge, beautiful French mansion in which Napoleon all alone paces forever blaming everyone else for the fact that he didn't end up being the emperor of the world um yeah and th and that that seems to be uh seems to be hell for lewis the interesting thing is that uh, he he imagines souls in hell actually getting to come into kind of the outskirts of heaven and interact with you know the souls of the blessed and even then even though they are out of hell, hell is in their heart. Um, gosh, that sounds really familiar. Um, is 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 that not uh, Mephistopheles? Right. It's also Satan from Milton's Paradise Lost. Yeah. Okay. So, well, Lewis is a good lit guy. Um, so these these people they they carry they carry hell in them, and so even though even though. Uh, some of the blessed souls that the narrator encounters say that that sometimes one of the ghosts from the gray town will change and go with uh, the blessed spirits into the high country and see God. I don't think you ever you, you never see it. It never happens because all of them, the conversation ends up. You know, they get they might get close to being persuaded, but then they cave back into their sin and they and they they, you know, gather it to themselves, finding comfort in it and becoming less and less human and more and more just sin. Right. And and honestly, that's one of the things I like best about Lewis's version of it is that it borrows so much from these other literary hells. You know, the gray town looks a lot like what I imagine, you know, if I translated Homer's Hades into a modern setting. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's definitely a place of self-deception like Milton. It's def definitely a place governed by 
internal desire rather than external coercion, which is very Dantean. I mean, it's it's definitely something to where Lewis, I mean, who obviously is a brilliant literary mind, is pulling together all of these elements uh, and saying, you know, let's let's build a hell for the 20th century, shall we? Yeah, there's a couple of other literary uh, uh, precursors that that I thought. It seems that there's this one account in which uh, there's this little dwarf, this little tiny man who has with him a, an actor, a tragedy actor, who is who is the voice of his own self-aggrandizing, uh, you know, sense of martyrdom. And the more the more the actor speaks the bigger he gets and the smaller the little man gets until eventually the little man disappears and whatever that human was is gone and all that's left is his is the sense of tragic self-aggrandizing martyrdom he's he has become the sin um in book three of the fairy queen there's a character named malbeco whose wife um is uh is seduced runs away from him and uh, eventually, she finds herself in the company of a bunch of of a bunch of satyrs, who behave exactly the way satyrs do. And as a result, Malbeco is immensely jealous, and in the end, actually becomes jealousy. Forgets that he was a man and becomes the figure of jealousy. And if you've read any of the Fairy Queen, you know that it's populated by people who have the names of virtues and the names of vices. Um, who are you know incarnations of these values, and this man Malbeco, by living by living in this sin, eventually becomes it, and forgets that he was ever human, that he was ever more than that. Um, which uh, I I know that Lewis loved the Fairy Queen, so I, I'm wondering if there's maybe a bit of Malbeco in uh, the Great Divorce as well. Right, and of course I'm I mean that's. An echo as well of Dante's circle of thieves where they become theft, you know, their very essence becomes the body snatcher. You know, yeah. there is no static identity. It's always being stolen from you. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, I'm, you know, again, the, that Lewis is picking up on those literary echoes from so many sources. Um, I mean, the, the, the bus to heaven, I mean, that's, that's definitely what I would call the departure for Lewis. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, that, that is very that is very much a C.S. Lewis move to make. You know, I mean, it's very reminiscent of the dwarves uh, in the afterlife in the, is it the final battle? Is that the seventh Narnia book? The last battle, yeah. The last battle, there you go. Yeah. You know what else it reminds me of, Nathan, is um, the orthodox view of heaven and hell. All right. In the, in the orthodox view, as I understand it, I'm not orthodox and I'm certainly no expert on orthodoxy, but the orthodox view is that the lights of heaven are the fires of hell god's glory shines on you if you're in heaven and burns you if you're in hell ah so mm. i mean it, it's kind of the same idea which is the people in in hell in the great divorce are free to get off that bus they're free to go to heaven if they want to but to do so would require a fundamental shift in perspective that they're not willing to make right and well and it's interesting i mean that that is the that's what frustrated me the first two times I read the first few times, pardon me, that I read Dante's purgatory, but makes perfect sense to me and is beautiful to me now is that the souls don't have a set term. It's not as if, you know, some sort of judge figure says, all right, you know, I sentence you to 302 years and four days in purgatory, but rather they're in purgatory until they manifest the desire to ascend to, to heaven and of course, you know, being a good evangelical with a very flat view of heaven, I think, well, of course I think that, I've, I've read Dante this many times, but, you know, it occurred to me, okay, well, why not just want to go to heaven on day one? And the answer <laughs> is, of course, that, you know, heaven is, is a desire to which most people are not yet adequate. That's why you have purgatory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while I'm not going to go into my Sunday school class this Sunday and, you know, teach them all to believe in purgatory. I will say that as a literary vision and a philosophical vision, there are a few things more beautiful in Dante than his vision of purgatory. Absolutely. If you haven't read, if you've read the Inferno and haven't read Purgatorio, you need to go read it. It's a, it's, it's the far superior book in uh, my opinion. It's, it's interesting that you, that 
that you look at that because there was another uh, there was another literary thing, another literary reference that I thought of when when looking at at the great divorce and the idea of these humans turning into their sins is the opposite of that which happens in Langland's Piers Plowman, the Middle English Piers Plowman. There is a uh, a really extended scene in which figures of sins with the names of the sins are called to confession and they describe and, and in confession, they, they describe all of the ways in which those sins manifest in ordinary lives. And then the sins are called to repentance. And they do. At which point, Langland, Langland kind of leaves the vision, but it, it, it makes you wonder, well, what, what would have happened? Were those were those sins really just – were they always just symbolic characters? Or is he musing on the way that sin sin turns people into one dimensions, one dimension? But when the sin is gone, what was left? What was left was all of those things, all of those things in life that the sin had prevented. And um, you know, if you if if the vision had lasted longer, I, I think what you would have seen in Pierce Plowman is these one dimensional sinful humans. Uh, Repenting, turning to God, trusting in God's grace, which you know in Pierce Plowman is a is a, a big deal, and becoming human, becoming fully human. Well, that's interesting. I, I don't know how familiar Langland was with the Thomas tradition or with the text of the Summa, but I mean that definitely reminds me of Thomas's idea that existence is always a gift, and that mm-hmm. sin is a warping of a gift. Because I mean, it seems like that that vision definitely flows out of that kind of philosophy of existence. Yeah. And, and and it seems to me that, that, that Lewis's great divorce and uh, not having read Purgatorio, but it sounds, it sounds something similar is, is that the, that the call to repentance that you see in the bus trip or in Purgatorio or in this life in William Langland, that, that call to repentance is the call to, Abandon the sin that has made you less than you should than you could be, and become what you were meant to be. Um, you know, you know, abandon the thing that has robbed you of of the goodness of your existence, and become the goodness of your uh, that that was you know that was meant to be. Well, I'm looking at the time we're running down. Uh, we can't do an episode on hell with Michael Farmer on the air, and not talk about John Paul Sartre's No Exit. So, Michael. Hell is other people discuss. Well, I think our <laughs> listeners um, have probably lived long enough to understand why hell is other people. And if they haven't, they should keep that phrase in the back of their mind and pull it out the next time they get cut off in traffic or the next time they get stuck behind someone writing a check at the supermarket or the next time they're flipping through the channels and Jersey Shore comes on. Hell is indeed other people. But in, um, in Sartre, it comes in the context of this fable about the afterlife in which three people who were pretty much terrible human beings when they were alive find themselves shoved in this room together in the afterlife. And you get this guy uh, who deserted the French army during World War II and he cheated on his wife. And you get this woman who was a closeted lesbian who murdered her cousin. And then there's this other woman who commits infanticide and that causes her lover to kill himself. So unlike in Homer and Virgil's visions of the afterlife, these people are free to talk. Um, Presumably they're free to touch one another. And, of course, there's no chains or torture or anything else like that. They're just locked in this room in what amounts to a luxury hotel, and they have a valet and everything. So they figure at the beginning of the play that maybe eternity isn't going to be so bad. But then you find out they have no eyelids. (laughs) Well, the problem is they've got time to get to know each other. And what's terrible about that is not so much that they're getting to know these horrible people, but that these horrible people are getting to know them. And they're looking into their souls, and it's like this feedback loop. It's painful and ugly and humiliating, and it's torture. And and that's what Sartre means when he says that hell is other people, not just that people are annoying, but that people have the power to know you, and you end up like a proof rock impaled on the edge of the pen. Mm. Um, now, I, I don't think Sartre is trying to say, and maybe he is, I don't know. Uh, maybe, I don't think he's trying to say that all relationships are hell. I think for Sartre, relationships are like everything else, which is to say that they're whatever you make of them. Um, I can't remember if it's him or maybe somebody else who said that you, everybody has the face they deserve at 50. I think that is Sartre. 
um, the punishment for these characters wouldn't have been nearly so painful if they hadn't have been such reprehensible human beings to begin with. Um, we've all got secrets, though, and we've all got things that we're ashamed of that we hope nobody else is ever going to find out about. And so there's going to be that element of hell in our relationships with people who really know us. But it doesn't have to be quite as bad as the uh, quotation, hell as other people, makes it sound. It's, it's not quite that black and white. Most things aren't. Well, as usual, I have run us out of time before we can get to the big questions. So we're going to have to do this as a sort of lightning round. Each of you is going to have 30 seconds to talk. Uh, I mean, we've talked about all these literary visions of hell. Uh, in your view, and we're going to start with David and then go to Michael and then I'll wrap up. Um, are there any dangers to writing and reading literature about hell? On balance, do you think it's a good or a bad thing? And either way you come down on that, why do you come down that way? David, you've got 30 seconds. Go. Uh, the dangers are uh, what, well, what I think Lewis uh, talks about in the, introdu in the introduction of the, of the Great Divorce, which is um, it's speculation about something that is, that is beyond our ability to, uh, we don't have to understand and express. Uh, we don't know what that you know what hell would be like, and there is uh, the temptation to come up with descriptions to literalize those descriptions, and then uh, to, to sort of uh, make make smaller what is what is a big thing. Any attempt on our part to describe uh, what what eternal punishment would be like is going to be less than the thing itself. Um, All right. On balance, good or bad thing on, on balance. Uh, well, on balance, it's a good thing because I think if we, if we could understand for a moment, the real thing, uh, we would probably go crazy. Um, but on the balance, I, I would say it's, it's still a good thing. It's still a good thing to discuss it. Um, just because it's uh, examining evil and its consequences are something that he, that humans absolutely must do. All right. Michael, David did not observe the 30 second rule, but I so never I'll give you what time you, what time you need. I don't think I've ever talked for 30 seconds um, at a time on this show. <laughs> um, I, I agree with David, of course, that, that there's a real danger in taking these literary descriptions of hell and taking them as literal. I, I prefer not to uh, say or, or certainly make any kind of definitive statement on anything in the afterlife. What's interesting about these visions of hell is what they tell us about the here and now, what they tell us about what it means to be a human being. Uh, no Exit, for example, tells us not so much what the afterlife life is going to be like. Sartre didn't even believe in an afterlife. Um not so much what the afterlife is going to be like as what day-to-day -day life is like, what our relationships now are like. Um, and I think, I think that's where these depictions of hell are interesting. Was that 30 seconds? That's about 30 seconds. Now I'll take my 30. Uh, I think the danger, like David and Michael have said, is that someone can take these and literalize them. You know, George Bernard Shaw famously mocked people who thought that hell was basically just like Milton described it. Uh, I think that what makes them so interesting, what makes them so good to study as literature is because they are extensions of our own world. Uh, they are literary imaginings of what does our world look like carried to its logical extent. Mm. Well, at any rate, we have talked a good talk uh, about a hell of a lot of things. <laughs> um, if you want to read some writing from the illustrious Michael Farmer, you can go to ladderonwheels.blogspot.com. If you want to read some writings from the mediocre Nathan Gilmore, you can go to nathangilmore.com slash hardly. Some of them uh, figures may be inaccurate. <laughs> uh, Michael, next week we are going to start our long-awaited movie trilogy on the Christian Humanist Podcast. Why don't you talk for just a few seconds about the comedy installment? We're going to talk about comedy in the first of our three-part uh, three movie series. Brevity being the soul of wit. Thank you, Michael. I don't know what else to say about it other than that, Nathan. I haven't come up with any questions <laughs> He doesn't want to give yet. away the ending, folks. He doesn't want to give away the ending. <laughs> At any rate, if you want to leave, leave us comments, you can leave it on those blogs. You can leave it on our new Christian Humanist podcast website, christianhumanist.org slash chp. Or you can email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We would be thrilled to hear from you in any of those venues. 
for now, that is the end of this episode. So on behalf of David Grubbs, on behalf of Michael Farmer, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. 